Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Good evening. Uh, thank you all so much for being here. Uh, we're very, very excited about the world premiere of Eurydice. Um, as I mentioned in, in all the season previews, this is our first uh, world premiere since 2010. Um, so in addition to all the other pressure that Matt feels, um, there's an enormous amount of pressure riding on the fact that these are uh, rare indeed on the main stage. So um, while uh, we are in fact in the midst of the third year of your residency, um, before we start talking about Eurydice specifically, I think it might be useful to turn back the clock a little bit and talk about the trajectory that got you to this point and why you're specifically interested um, as a composer in writing opera. We'd have to turn the clock back pretty far to answer that question. You know, opera is kind of an impossible art form. (laughs) Uh, It it aims for uh, literally the impossible, which is to bring together all the senses and, 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 and create this union of, you know, everything has been cared for in an opera, you know, the sound, the, the sets, the poetry, the dancing, everything. Um, and I think I am attracted to impossible challenges. Uh, so uh, it felt very early on like the best way to bring together many of my uh, passions from, of course, music, instrumental music, vocal music, uh, poetry, drama, but then as a kid, you think, well, nobody writes operas anymore. It seems impossible in a more practical sense. So uh, for a while, I took a detour and, and, and played other kinds of music, jazz and, and rock music. And then in college, started to really give it a go and experiment with, with writing small chamber, chamber operas. Uh, and much to my amazement, one thing did lead to another. I was studying at Harvard where the American Repertory Theater, the ART, is based, a very good regional theater. And uh, their team took a huge leap of faith in me based on some student pieces that they had seen in their backyard and kind of proved themselves willing to transform themselves into an opera company, which is a crazy thing for a, uh, a straight theater company to do, hire an orchestra, hire wonderful singers, including Rod Guilfrey, uh, an L.A. opera stalwart, to make my first professionally produced opera crossing happen. And so for the couple of years after I graduated, I thought, well, this is, you know, this is the most absurd opportunity and really threw myself into making that piece as good as it could be. And that brings us to how L.A. opera came into my life because Christopher here... Uh, flew out to see, I believe it was the second performance ever of Crossing, and we had dinner afterwards. And, you know, that was, I think, the next leap of faith, in a way, was was beginning to talk about this position, this artist-in-residence position, which doesn't really resemble any that typically exist at an opera house. Uh, so I'm, I'm very 
grateful for that. That's the that's a short-ish version of the story. And so the the, the process of of working on Crossing and then your next big vocal piece, uh, a piece called Orphic Moment, didn't I mean it didn't in a way it didn't scratch the itch. It it actually inspired you to go bigger, better, faster, more rather than it being a daunting part of the process, right? <laughs> it was daunting for sure. I'm glad you brought up those two pieces, Crossing and a, a shorter vocal piece called The Orphic Moment, because that's also Orpheus-inspired the same way Eurydice is. Crossing, uh, I have a complicated relationship with this piece, because the initial idea, some of you may have seen it last year, it's, it's about, people are nodding, that's great, uh, about Walt Whitman, uh, his experiences during the Civil War. It was an idea that was kind of a student's idea. And then it took three years to cook all the way through because operas take a long time in the oven to, to turn, you know, golden brown. And so I felt that there were big problems with it that had to do with the scale that I had assigned for myself. And I found that the Orphic Moment, which was a kind of twisted 15-minute long journey into the mind of Orpheus right before he turns around at that moment in the myth... Uh, it actually felt to me more successful, both because I became kind of obsessed with the subject matter um, and because it was smaller scale. <laughs> and Eurydice is bigger scale than both of them put together, um, but it's also had a very healthy um, gestation process. So um, full disclosure, when, when Matt and I first um, started talking about his residency, uh, we were talking about commissioning a, a piece which is in fact not Eurydice, um, and, and cooler heads prevailed that he couldn't produce 32 operas in 32 months. And so, actually, the the Eurydice, the genesis of Eurydice, was actually at the Metropolitan Opera. So can you just talk us through the, the timetable and, and how that conversation began with the Met? Sure. I was working for a period as an assistant conductor at the Met, a member of their music staff. An assistant conductor at the Met really means everything from you might have to conduct a performance to you do have to get the conductor coffee. So it's, it's, it's kind of a glorified, uh, you know, factotum job. And uh, I was working there on various productions while I was writing Crossing, and, and it was a stroke of of good fortune that their dramaturg heard that I also composed and there was a program of my music at Juilliard across the street. Uh, so this is back in you know 2014, it was a while ago, that they approached me and said, let's start talking about a piece. And the Metropolitan Opera has a kind of ingenious system for commissioning operas. And this is actually, to give them credit, because truly brilliant legal minds had to have come up with this. Uh, when they commission a piece, they don't actually promise to produce it. They commission it to be workshopped. That is, to spend a week with a bunch of singers and a piano and give it kind of a trial run in a you know, basement room at Lincoln Center Theater. And then, you know, the emperor decides which way the thumb is going to go. To be honest, that was a little bit paralyzing. Just the, the, the total... Uh, blank slate. You know, the composer John Harbison, who who had an opera done at the Met once, and felt that it did not go very well. The Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsby was asked afterwards, "Well, what what kind of piece, new piece, would work at the Met?" And he said, "I don't know, King Kong." <laughs> In other words, it's it's actually hard for a composer to try and imagine something that's on this vast canvas, and you don't even know if it's going to be produced. So it was very tricky, actually 
to, and it took me a couple of years of just feeling like I've been given this extraordinary opportunity and I can't even think about what the piece is that I want to write. And I think uh, when I started talking uh, with you, Christopher, uh, and we started sh devising this, this residency, it all began to feel a little bit more uh, real. I mean, LA Opera is more or less the same scale as the Met. It's it, they're both it's it's grand opera in both cases, but the human connection and the reality that we were going to build towards producing it unlocked something. Um, and sometime that year, uh, I realized, oh, I'm totally obsessed with Orpheus and what that myth actually means for human beings. And I I don't want to set it in the ancient world, and I don't want to use various pre-existing texts of it, but I want to do something with this story, uh, and eventually uh, came across Sarah Rule, very luckily, whose play Eurydice was a libretto waiting to happen. Was that daunting at all, the idea that you were taking on subject matter that had been um, inspiring for so many great composers before you? Not especially. Of course, the reality is that if you write an Orpheus opera, people have got Monteverdi and Gluck and the others in their heads. But it's just one of the inescapable stories. Uh, there's this great thing that a, a teacher of mine in college said about these, these myths, which is that the question is not, did they actually happen? You know, the, the reality is that they are always happening inside of us, that we've all been... We've probably all been Orpheus and been Eurydice at some point. We've all looked back, even though we know that doing that is going to doom us to something. We've all betrayed someone in that, that way. It's so deep in the psyche of our species that it, it, it feels that we all, we all kind of own this material <laughs> and we all have a right to engage with it. That's the great thing about, about myths. And another thing that helped, actually, was that Eurydice is not purely my conception of it. It's, it's really Sarah's. Sarah's idea of who Orpheus is is not my own interpretation of it, but it was kind of nice after trying to write my own libretti for the, for the earlier operas to, to work with a different voice, to have her voice uh, in my head, because her, her voice is it has this lightness and this freshness to it and a kind of magical Alice in Wonderland sense of humor also, which, which doesn't come naturally to me when I'm writing words. Uh, so that, that all helped lighten the load a little bit. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because actually I think that in the, in the workshop process that we've gone through in collaboration with the Met, I've noted that Sarah's work, um, both in the way in which she's crafted the myth and also in her work with you, um, has inspired a kind of different compositional voice from you that maybe is where you were headed anyway, but but there's something about the creative tension between the two of you. And so maybe uh, because m some of you or most of you probably don't know Sarah's play, can you just talk briefly about the sensibility of the play and also about her particular take on this most familiar of myths? Yes. Well, I I'm sure most of you do know the original story, but just in case anyone needs a primer, the myth as it comes to us is basically Orpheus is the greatest singer in the world. He's somewhere between a human and a superhuman. We don't really know, you know, maybe Apollo was his father. It's, it's, it's a little unclear. And he's, he's marrying a woman named Eurydice who in the original story is kind of whoever. 
She's not a, f a fully fleshed out character. Uh, and they're getting married. It's their wedding day. And Orpheus, sorry, Eurydice is bitten by a snake and she dies. Orpheus goes down to the gates of hell, charms the the, 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 the big bosses of Hades with his music and gets a second chance to bring Eurydice back up to earth with him. The one condition, of course, is that he can't look back to make sure she's there. He has to trust it. And of course he doesn't. And he, he looks back and she, she dies again. And Sarah's take centers the, the action on the figure of Eurydice. And I think the thing that inspired it really is a relationship Sarah had with a musician in college and her own frustration and affection and anger uh, and insecurity uh, about herself in relation to this super cool musician. And so there's this basic tension in the play between uh, music and language. Orpheus's music, Eurydice's language. She overthinks everything and that's her fatal flaw. So we, we meet Orpheus and Eurydice as, as young lovers, very much in America in the 21st century. It's, the, the language is very familiar. It's, it's mostly totally idiomatic. You know, you, you'd recognize it on, on the street. But instead of being bitten by a snake at their wedding, Eurydice uh, steps out because she hates big, loud parties uh, to get a drink of water outside the, the party, and a mysterious man appears and says, I have a letter for you from your father. He wanted to reach you on your wedding day, and Eurydice's father uh, is dead. So this is surprising news, but she feels somehow that, of course, my dad would want to get in touch with me. So against her better judgment, she follows this mysterious man to a penthouse apartment, you know, somewhere it's like Hudson Yards, you know, it's this, this 60th floor of a soulless glass building. And uh, of course he is the Lord of the underworld in the guise of a, of a skeezy middle-aged businessman. And he really does have this letter from her dead father because he's the Lord of the underworld, but he's there to, to get Eurydice. And so she falls down the stairs into the underworld and and, in, and unlike in the conventional tellings of the myth, we follow her into the underworld. We follow her through the river of forgetfulness. So we see her kind of become an amnesiac. Uh, and we see her reunite with her father in the underworld. And he has mysteriously, it's very important for the plot, he's mysteriously not lost his memory and his sense of identity. So we see... Uh, the two of them slowly kind of relearn their relationship down there, while Orpheus is, of course, making his siege from up above. I won't give away the whole ending, but, of course, it can't end well. <laughs> well, I love that description because I think it, it, it underlines the idea that, in fact, Orpheus is really a supporting character in this piece. It's the reason why it's called Eurydice. It is really, uh, it's a kind of reclamation of the myth from her point of view, which I think is uh, a very beautiful and fresh take on the material. So we often have these conversations. They're often with directors, designers, conductors, singers, but uh, it's pretty rare that I get to interview the composer. So I think the question that everyone's dying to understand is you're confronted with a blank sheet of paper 
um, and this idea of a project, what what is the actual process of, of putting this together? Do you write in piano vocal first? Do you start working with singers? Do you just have free-floating compositional ideas in your head? Walk us through a typical day in the in the uh, creation of Eurydice. <laughs> it's not glamorous. It's basically, you know, wake up, make coffee, and stare at the stare at the notepad for 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 eight hours. Uh, uh, one thing actually is that I write by hand, uh, even even the full score. Um, I realized that I, though the 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 software that's available at the moment for for notating music is amazing. It's truly amazing what it can do in terms of its clarity and its ability to just make parts for the musicians. It was messing with my neural flow. I mean, I literally felt that I couldn't engage with music the same way if I weren't feeling the pressure of of the pencil on the page. Maybe it's because I also conduct, but it feels, it feels kind of similar when you're, when you're actually writing it down. Uh, So that's the, that's one thing is that it is literally uh, stacks of, 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 of handwritten papers. The process of making the play Eurydice, which has been around since 2003, into a libretto was actually was relatively painless. Normally, the librettist and composer, you know, at some point are cats and dogs. I mean, Strauss and, and von Hofmannsthal didn't even meet in person. I mean, it was all by letters because they couldn't stand each other. Uh, but I think because this play is already very spare, that is, Sarah is a, is a magician with stage directions. You know, her stage directions will say, you know, in the underworld, the father builds Eurydice a room made out of string. This can take time. It takes time to build a room out of string. You know, there's just action that happens in this gorgeous, beautiful way. And and it's not, you know, it's not Shakespeare. You know, if you adapt a Shakespeare play, you have to cut out 80% of it or the piece would last 12 hours. So whittling it down was pretty, was relatively straightforward. So I, I wanted to wait till we had a working draft before I started uh, thinking of, of the music. The, the part where the ideas actually emerge is not really something I can talk about because I don't actually understand it, especially when I'm working with text it just appears, or it doesn't. <laughs> it's more often the case, but I think our language has these hidden inner rhythms, and in a way, that's what you're doing when you set text: is you're trying to unlock what the music of your language is. And the music of American English is very weird and angular. It's weird enough when you speak it, but then when you try to sing it, it everything is exponentially stranger and, and more unpredictable. So really, I th- I, what it feels like I'm doing with, with a libretto is, is, is trying to get at the truth of how the text flows. Are you, are you writing at the piano? I do write at the piano, yeah, because the piano is, is my home instrument and... Uh, you know, Stravinsky always said I, I, he likes to feel the music in his fingers, which I think is great. You know, it, it, your body will tell you if you're uh, if you're BSing. You know, it'll it will physically feel wrong if a chord is voiced the wrong way, uh, or uh, if you know a two four bar needs to be a three eight bar, whatever. It's so I'm I'm a big believer in banging on the piano till you get the good stuff. And are you writing first in 
piano reduction and then orchestrating that, or are you writing in full orchestra and doing a reduction? I'm kind of writing a reduction. Uh, so this is, for anyone who doesn't know the, the practical process of, of bringing an opera to the stage, most of you probably do, there's a full score which contains all the information that the whole orchestra needs to, to play their parts, and then there's a reduced version for the purposes of rehearsal, which can be played by one pianist. Often it's you know a pianist having to pretend to be a hundred people at once. I did write that first in part because I knew we were going to workshop it with just piano. And if you orchestrate it and then you do the workshop and you decide to make changes, that we're, you're talking hundreds of hours lost. So it's better to wait to orchestrate until you really know how it goes. So and how do you, how do you feel about deadlines, the workshop process? I mean, is this, is this helpful to have all of those opinions. <laughs> there are a lot, of, a lot of cooks in the kitchen uh, these days. It's funny. I mean, I, I know that I can be frank with, with you, Christopher, which is great. I do think that... in about to tell me he hated my notes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, actually, uh, LA Opera is, was not the party calling for endless workshopping. That was very much our partner in this, in this process. You know, in American opera at the moment, the great thing is there's this surge in new pieces. Some of you have probably noticed there are so many exciting composers, and just as important, there are a ton of performers and companies and donors who say, I would love to support or bring to life a brand new piece, because I think Traviata is doing okay. Traviata's not going anywhere. It, you know, we're, we're, it's not that we want to kill Traviata. It's just that there's room. So I, I feel super lucky that I'm emerging in this field now rather than 20 years ago. It feels like a different ball game. The only thing is that there has also been this kind of codified system of workshopping. Um, which means that we we have done for this piece two full workshops of of about ten days each, um, and I think to be frank that the workshop process is designed for composers who are new to vocal music fundamentally. It's so that you can hear what it sounds like. The first workshop for me was massively helpful. I learned so much, and I really felt I'm ready to go. The second workshop, I was thinking to myself you know, I could be orchestrating right now. <laughs> and that way you'd all have the piece sooner. So g give us an example of something that you learned in the process, in that first workshop process that you didn't know going into it. Because of course, you know, this, this is a, it's a huge shift in scale yeah. um, between this and, and the things that you've done before. Um, and so, the, you know, the workshop process to some degree, it's, it's for the artist, but it's as much for the institution to try. It's a, it's a, form of bed hedging because there's a, there's a lot of pressure, um, financial and otherwise, on that piece in a way that wouldn't have been true even, even for Crossing, even though that was a huge risk for ART to take on. I learned so much from that first workshop. Um, some of them were actually pleasant surprises. You know, there's a role in this opera, Hades, the Lord of the Underworld. I thought, how, how are we going to represent Hades? You know, what's, what's his voice going to be? The, the obvious thing would be to, you know, basically make him Sam Raimi, you know, make him Mephistopheles, make it a sort of swaggering bass baritone. But I had this bizarre idea that uh, Hades should be a freaky high tenor. 
like a super, like a, like a, a tenor that lives up there in the Fidu Regiment range. And, and, and my sense was that he, you know, he, because he's a, a god, he's not actually aware that he sounds different from us, but he's, he actually does sound kind of freaky. He sounds like he's taken helium. Uh, and a pleasant surprise was that actually tenors do like singing this, and in both of our workshops, we've had tenors that just ate it up. I thought, is this going to work? But I also learned things like the second act, the opera's in three acts, the second act just sagged. It just died. Uh, a lot of music that I felt very personally attached to, and oh, I really love that part, it means so much to me, none of that means anything if it doesn't you know, work on its feet. Um, and there was a period of you know, 20 minutes where it just kind of, the souffle fell, and man, that's a rough feeling. For a composer, you feel like it's the you know the bit in the Clockwork Orange where they're strapped you know with with your eyes pried open. You're just forced to sit through all of the stuff that doesn't work. So I <laughs> I am actually grateful for that experience because it tells you it ain't gonna fly. We have to change this part. I'm so glad you brought that up because there's very very beautiful music in that now excised. Um, you know, some 100 years from now, some conductor will find the lost. 20 minutes and open up that cut. But um, it actually begs the question for me, which is, I mean, you don't know how much more music you're gonna produce in your life, you have, a, you have a dream, but that 20 minutes of music, have you now put it in a draw, drawer for the idea that you will recycle it for some future purpose? Because it's wonderful music. Uh, it's just for the moment, it's, it's sitting there. I, I, I'm, I'm not gonna put it in a bonfire, but it's, you know, it's funny, things do have a way of, of um, recycling themselves, and, and, and not even in conscious ways. It, it's, it's, it's really important for an opera to generate a ton of material that is harmonic progressions and rhythmic motives. It, it literally is like preparing your ingredients before making a huge meal, because you just, you don't know what's gonna come in handy. And, you know, some of that material might resurface elsewhere in the opera, so. Um, I think we should turn, actually, to some music. Um, so, uh, uh, I think you prepared a, a few selections that I think help illustrate the idea of um, how you, and you talked about Hades, I don't know if you have a Hades piece, but you talked about the way in which you're using uh, the music to illustrate character. I think we're used to thinking of um, Wagnerian leitmotifs as a way of kind of illustrating character. Do you want to play something with the piece as a way of kind of illustrating this point? Yeah, certainly. Let me just move over to the... Yeah to the piano for that. I should really start with Eurydice since it's, it's, it's far and away the biggest challenge, the biggest role. And I think to bring up, somehow Traviata came up earlier, there's something that people say about the role of, of Violetta, which is that you need one voice for act one, a different voice for act two, and a third voice for act three. Uh, and I really hope I haven't done that to the singers that, that will have to sing um, this part. Certainly not making any comparisons as far as quality, uh, but I, I do think the, the role um, encompasses a really huge emotional range, uh, and and so sometimes it needs to be dramatic and with some bite to it, and other times it has to be very lyrical and, and gentle, uh, and everything in between. Eurydice has three substantial arias. The first one is when she arrives in the underworld at the beginning of act two. She's just, she's passed through the river of forgetfulness. And so she has no idea what's just happened to her. She just, she's saying, 
uh, I heard a roar and I felt cold and I think my husband was with me and then she realizes that she can't remember her husband's name. She gets as far as or and then, and then falls silent. And, 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 and the, that sort of chilly, unfeeling underworld is, is, is felt through this, this repeating pattern. It's just very, very simple. That kind of runs like a riv river through it. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll fake my way through a bit of this, uh, of this, uh, of this opening aria of Eurydice. And so on. <laughs> it's a little tricky uh, without a singer, of course. And and the second of Eurydice's arias is is much more reflective. She's by this time remembered who she is and remembered who Orpheus was and remembered everything. Um, and so she kind of reflects on what it is like to to to, to be married to an artist. Uh, which is not easy, and 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 she's kind of wistfully thinking back on imagining him kind of as this moon that hangs over her house and and bathes her in light, but is always going away, always getting farther away.
Uh, and then there is Orpheus's music. Uh, a word about our Orpheus. Uh, I wanted to find a way to musically represent his split nature, the fact that he's part human and part divine, part superhuman. Uh, and there are moments in the play when he just seems to be uh, an ordinary guy and, and not a very mature one. He seems to sort of be a you know self-involved college student. But then there are times when he opens his mouth to sing and this uncanny thing pours out. Uh, and so Orpheus the guy is a baritone. And there are moments, though, when he is doubled by a countertenor whose sound hovers above his kind of like a halo, strange kind of overtone. Uh, and so it's only in the moments when he goes into his musical trance, really, that the, the double also speaks. Uh, there's a bit early on when, uh, when Orpheus is, is telling... He's, he's actually planning to propose to Eurydice, but he's building up to that, and he's telling her all the things that he'll that they're going to do together. He says, oh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll write a song that's so powerful that it'll, you know, your hair will turn into an instrument, and I'll play it, and you'll zoom up into the sky. And he kind of gets, gets carried away. The music starts very gently and then kind of goes, uh, goes a little bit ballistic. Actually, it's, it's worth maybe playing Eurydice's response, which is, I don't know if I want to be an instrument. <laughs> And so on. There's a later moment. This is a bunch that I wish I could show you, but it really depends on the two voices. One strange, big moment for Orpheus is when he actually confronts Hades and... and, and uh, and tries to win them over, uh, and he sings a, uh, the most, it's kind of the most set piece aria in the whole opera, in that it's the ultimate set piece. He has to sing a song to, to win her back, so, and, and this, is a, this is a piece for, for, for both voices, both Orphei, uh, and I, I wanted to use kind of ancient sounding, weird, medieval, modal intervals, because it's a very formal, epic thing that he's that he's that he's trying to do so this is just a little bit i know we don't have a ton of time just a little bit of uh, of of orpheus's big moment
and, and so on. <laughs> I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it might be wise, given that we do have a wonderful singer who I would dream of singing this role someday, uh, here with us to, to give a, a sneak peek uh, with, uh, with singing uh, of Eurydice's last aria. Uh, in the opera. Um, so Erica, just before you come up, I would love to actually read the text first, since you don't have it printed out. Yeah, and in fact, before before we get there, can, can I just ask two questions? Please. Because you're going to get them from the audience anyway. Uh, where where are you in the process? I'm orchestrating still. The piano vocal score is essentially done. A few minor tweaks, but it's essentially ready for the singers to be learning it, which is a big relief. And uh, act one is orchestrated. Act two is halfway there. And, and what else do you have between now and uh, our opening night uh, in February? You know, it, it's, it's kind of amazing. Not, not that much. And it makes me really happy. Um, I've got to write a couple of other pieces, but um, <laughs> there's that. You know, with, with the draft of, of the vocal score done, I'm beginning to think about what the next opera could be. Uh, up until now, the brain space has been occupied and that's a nice feeling to, you know, Oliver Nussen said that if you ever run into a composer at a bookstore, the only thing he or she is thinking is, could I make it into an opera? Could I do it? You know, with any book that they're holding. Uh, so that, that's, that's, that's kind of where I am at. And uh, uh, so what are the other pieces you're writing between now and then? Uh, just a, a string quartet, which has been uh, commissioned for the Brentano Quartet by uh, Carnegie Hall and a few other presenters around the country. And, uh, but do you find that you can build a kind of firewall between this piece and the other assignments that you've been given and also keep at bay the idea that there's a creeping new idea about a potential opera? I mean, can you kind of cordon that off to concentrate aesthetically on, on this piece? Yeah, they're very different, I think, parts of the brain orchestrating versus um, dreaming up a new piece. And the nice thing is they don't, interfere with each other as a result of that. Or orchestrating is like coloring it in. It's like painting. You know, I have the I have the sketch in black and white and now you need to figure out, you know, a bit of clarinet there, you know, horn sound here, you know, harp. It's 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 coloring, basically. And that's very different from dreaming up something from scratch. And my final question is actually, if uh, given the fact that you uh, wrote Crossing as a relatively young man, and then you spent a substantial amount of time revising it, but now now it is complete, have there been specific lessons about that process that are are being applied for the crafting of this piece? Will you potentially relieve yourself of the burden in the future of revising Eurydice following the run here, but before New York? We'll have to see how it goes. You'll all have to tell me what you think. We will. But I don't, I, I, I don't really expect, uh, Crossing was revised, was pretty much overhauled twice. I don't expect the same thing to happen here because the revisions in Crossing were mostly due to problems with the libretto, which I wrote myself. <laughs> and I was just not a very good, or I, I didn't have the, the craft as a, you know, I'm not a playwright. So what the heck was I doing trying to write my own libretto? So that was a big lesson, actually, because I lost a lot of time fixing mistakes that a playwright would never have made. And because Sarah's play was already uh, successful as a play, I can't imagine the same kind of revisions being necessary. But I'll stay humble. It may, it may well happen. <laughs> okay, back, back well, can to I, music. Can I just say, though, that it's, 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 it is rare 
I think you all know this, but it's it's rare for a company like LA Opera to invest so profoundly and with with this kind of long term um, care in a in a brand new piece. So it is certainly not lost on 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 this composer. So we, we thanks for all of your support, and I just cannot wait to bring this piece to to life. I would love to read the text of this aria to you, since uh, you know Erica has great diction, but you don't have text in front of you. This is the the last solo singing that you hear in the opera. Eurydice is back in the underworld, and her father has done the, well, the already dead person equivalent of committing suicide, which is to dip himself in the river of forgetfulness again, uh, because he thought that she was gone, and then she's back again. And she's preparing to dip herself in the river as well. And she's writing a letter to Orpheus, not knowing that he presumably has also killed himself up above, and so they just miss each other yet again. This is her letter to him, assuming that he's going to live longer with uh, some words for his future wife. Dear Orpheus, I'm sorry. I don't know what came over me. I was afraid. I'm not worthy of you, but I still love you, I think. Don't try to find me again. You would be lonely for music. I want you to to be happy. I want you to marry again. I'm going to write out instructions for your next wife. (laughs) To my husband's next wife. Be gentle. Be sure to comb his hair when it's wet. Do not fail to notice that his face flushes pink like a bride's when you kiss him. Give him lots to eat. He forgets to eat and he gets cranky. When he's sad, kiss his forehead and I will thank you. Because he is a young prince and his robes are too heavy on him. His crown falls down around his ears. I'll give this letter to a worm. I hope he finds you. Love, Eurydice.
You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.